0: Eastern Studies Department there, and I signed up for an independent reading uh, class with uh, a man who was quite well known as a Hebrew scholar. His name was John Huseman, and uh, it was my privilege to meet with uh, Dr. Huseman once once a week uh, for three hours uh, for the entire quarter in read through the Book of Isaiah. And it was, a, it was an interesting time for me. He, he was, uh, Dr. Huseman, was one of the world's uh, foremost Hebreus. He was quite a Hebrew scholar and a very intimidating man, very, very uh, intelligent. He just sort of crackled when you were around him. And uh, uh, I found it very difficult to relate to him. I was scared out of my wits most of the time. And uh, he was a very stern a sort of taskmaster, and uh, on top of it all, he was a Jesuit priest, so we had a a number of theological differences that uh, came up from time to time. But uh, on one particular occasion, we came to Isaiah 53, and I can still remember him sitting across the table from me. We met in his room, and he had a little pair of half-glasses that he uh, used for reading glasses. And he was bending over his text like this, following along with uh, with me as I bumbled my way through the passage. And uh, I came to Isaiah 53, where Isaiah, in talking about our Lord, the suffering servant, said, Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And here Isaiah is talking about our Lord Jesus, the suffering servant. And I looked up, and there were tears streaming down Dr. Huseman's face. And I thought, ah, a kindred soul. Uh, we had not talked about our relationship to the Lord much. Most of our talk had been about uh, grammar and the niceties of the text. But I saw at that moment, here's a man who was deeply touched by the power of this book. And uh, I have the same experience when I read it, and I think you will too. This is a book about our tough and tender father, our great and good heavenly father, who is described in this book as one of immense power and authority, awesome power. He bends his arm and he brings the Assyrian army from the east and he brings the Babylonians and he whistles as Isaiah puts it, for Cyrus, he's in command of history. He rules uh, the universe, and yet, uh, as Isaiah 40 puts it, that same arm encircles his little ones, his little lambs, and he holds them close to his to his heart. And uh, I think you're going to be deeply touched by this book. I know I am every time I read it. There are these thunderous uh, denunciations of sin that shake us uh, up. And then in the next breath, our Lord bends way down, and he says, Though a mother may forget her children, I'll never forget you. And uh, it's those warm, wonderful touches, I think, that, that get to us. They, they speak to, uh, to the heart. Now, uh, uh, introductions are always boring, uh, and uh, I, I've decided to spare you this morning. Uh, What I think I will do is talk a little bit about the historical background of the book as we go through specific texts and as an understanding of that history will help you understand the text rather than uh, back the truck up to you this morning. Uh, uh, There there was a song that Sam Cooke sang back in the 60s. It had a line in it, Don't Know Much About History. Some of you may remember that song. And uh, for many of us, uh, the Old Testament is like that. It's like Chinese history to those of us that live in the West or moon history. Uh, We have no idea what went on back there. And and we have to understand a little bit of, 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 of the historical background, but I want to spare you as much of it as possible. Let me just say this, that Isaiah wrote at about the middle of the 8th century. About the time of uh, Isaiah, Uzzi- who's is called Azariah in the book of Kings. In fact, if you want to turn to the first chapter of Isaiah, we're told that Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. A span of about 50 years uh, during the time that these four kings reigned, at least from the death of Isaiah, which was about 739 B.C., on to the end of the reign of Hezekiah. Uh, who died approximately 50 years later. So he had a long uh, ministry. This was a time when Israel was uh, having a very, very difficult time. Assyria was on the march, and some of these uh, fellows that you've read about in history, Tiglath, Pileser, and Sargon, and Sennacherib, were, uh, were extending the Assyrian Empire throughout the Middle East. They were the dominant power at that time. And the reason they were is because God was using them as his rod to chasten Israel. Israel was utterly, utterly corrupt. God had raised up the nation of Israel to be a light to the nations. And they were themselves a center of darkness at this time. And so God raised up this prophet Isaiah to speak to that, that issue. That's what the prophets did. That was their function. Uh, they were raised up by God at a particular time in the history of Israel in order to call Israel back to her unique place in history, her special relationship with God and her special mission to be li- to be a light to the rest of uh, of the world. that was their purpose. Uh, their their dominant theme was return, return, return to the Lord as I've said before the Hebrew word, uh, that's, that's translated return or turn in the Old Testament is the word shuv, turn around, make a 180 degree turn. Uh, it's used in the Song of Solomon where the young woman is dancing and the daughters of Jerusalem say to her, shuvy shuvy, turn around, turn around. She spins around uh, in her dance and that's the word that the prophets use. Turn around, turn around. Uh, as Dr. Walter Kaiser is fond of saying, the purpose of the prophets was to give Israel a shove in the right direction, uh, push them toward, uh, toward God. Now, when we think of prophets, we almost always think of some uh, fusty, finger-wagging, uh, grim, austere-looking uh, fellow on a corner someplace with a signpost that says, uh, Repent. Actually, the men and women who were prophets and prophetesses, uh, that God raised up were just very ordinary people like you and me. They weren't clergy. Uh, Amos was a fruit rancher. Uh, Daniel was a politician. And Isaiah apparently was a historian. He was the historian of the royal court. He himself was a member of the royal family. He may have been on uh, the cabinet, the official cabinet, and was the historiographer. He wrote the history of Judah during this uh, during this time. And he was just a very ordinary person who was deeply troubled by Israel's plight at this uh, at this particular time. Now, we're told in verse 1 that this is a vision. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. The word for vision here is the idea of insight. He has some insight that nobody else... He saw things that nobody else saw. And what was it that he saw? Well, chapter 1 really is a precy of the book, and it gives us an outline of where he's going. And we're not going to talk much about chapter 1. I want to move quickly to chapter 5. But I want you to look at chapter 1 for just a moment and, uh, and see something of the content of, of this book. He, he saw their sin in verses uh, 2 through 4. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel doesn't know. They do not understand. And tremendous pathos, poignancy in that in that statement. God is like a parent in pain. Raised a child. Did everything he possibly could for that child, and the child turned against him. And those of you that, that are parents in pain know, the, the, uh, uh, you know how that tears your heart to invest your time and energy and years into a child and to sit by them uh, through sickness and, uh, and, and through the struggles of childhood and then to have them turn against you. It's a heartbreaker and God describes Israel that way as a child that's rebelled against, against uh, its father. And he says, even oxen know better. Oxen are emblematic for stupidity. You know, even the dumb ox knows that it has an owner and it has a manger and it has a, it has a sense of gratitude and appreciation. But, ah, uh, Israel, he says, you just don't understand. He said, I wanted to give and give and give. And you've turned your back on me and you've, you've walked away. And the result is terrible misery. Verse 5. And this theme will be repeated over and over again. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you resist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head. Uh, George uh, MacDonald said, The refusal to look up to God as our Father is the one central wrong in the whole human affair. The one central misery. See? That's uh, That's what happens. Whenever we turn our backs on God, the result is always misery, serious misery. And that was uh, Israel's experience. And then in, in the rest of the chapter, beginning with verse 10, uh, Isaiah spells out the way of return. Verse 10, hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Oh, That must have stung uh, these Israelites to hear that they were like the Sodomites. Listen to the law of our God. The, uh, the word for law in the Old Testament, Torah, which all of you have heard, I'm sure, it's the word that Jews use today to refer to, their, to the law, the Old Testament law, it comes from a Hebrew word that means to point, yara, means to, to point out. The law is nothing more than God pointing out the, the way to have success in life. If we listen to what God has to say, we'll be successful. We will not uh, destroy ourselves. But if we don't listen, So what he points out to us, then our life will be unremitting misery. Now he says, listen, listen, listen up. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats when you come to meet with me. Who who has asked this, uh, this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your iniquity and solemn assembly. Worship and wickedness, he says, just don't go together. Here's what he's saying. You know, don't, he Just don't keep coming to the temple and offering these meaningless sacrifices if, if your heart is not in it. Doesn't do God any good, doesn't do you any good, certainly doesn't do the goat any good. Spare the goat, he says, save it, Unless your heart's in it, forget the religion. That's what he's saying. Forget the worship. Let's not play games, he's saying. Let's not fiddle around with the truth. Let's get serious. And the the way of return is spelled out in verses 18 and following. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. He's speaking here of the Assyrian captivity. As we'll see in chapter 5, what God did was just to remove all of the restraints and let nature take its course. And the Assyrian uh, army came and almost destroyed the southern kingdom of of Judah. The reason, the reasons were not political. The reasons were spiritual. It was because at the core, uh, things were terribly wrong in Israel. She had rebelled against against God. However, Isaiah says, though your sins be as blatant as scarlet, or even if they're as drab and uninspiring as, uh, as you know, even if they're gray sins, they can be as white as snow. You can be as pure as the driven snow. It doesn't make any difference how far you've gone or what you've done. If you return, if you repent, if you come back to him, he will remit your sin. He will send it away. That's what remit means. He will repair the damage. He will reinstate you fully. And he will make you better than you've ever been before. Now that's the theme of Isaiah. We're going to see that over and over again. He thunders out his denunciation against sin. And he tells them that the the consequences of sin is always death, boredom, and meaninglessness, and frustration, and depression, and misery, always is the result. But there's a way back, and it's not through meaningless religion, and rigmarole, and ritual, but it's through a, a heart that's open and honest before God. If we come to him, and we confess our sin, we repent of the evil that we've done, he will remit our sin, and he will restore us. And he will make us into everything that he has purposed uh, for us to be. He will, in fact, exceed our wildest expectations if we come to him. See, everything comes back to the central issue of abiding, remaining, trusting, relying upon him. All right, now let's go to chapter 5. Nothing like covering uh, four chapters in... uh, Three minutes. This is an interesting little parable. It's a song, poem, actually. And um, what Isaiah does with this uh, 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 this device, this literary device, is to subvert Israel's thinking. He gets them moving in one direction, and then he shifts gears on them and just takes their feet right out from under them. Uh, it's, this is something that Jesus did with his parables. It's what Nathan did with the little parable that he told uh, David. You, you remember the story? Nathan was involved in an adulterous affair with the wife of his best friend, Uriah the, the Hittite, one of his mighty men. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't, uh, uh he wouldn't give up that sin. He persisted in it. And God waited for a year and then he sent Nathan, who was David's closest friend and also a prophet to David. And Nathan told him a little story. And he said, uh, David, there was a man that had a a little pet sheep. And he loved that little sheep. And there was a fellow down the street that had a whole herd of sheep. And he had all the money that he needed to buy all the sheep in the world. But he went down and stole his friend's sheep. And he barbecued it for a number of his friends. And Nathan says, what do you think about that? And, And David was just outraged came up off his throne and he said the man deserves to die which was uh, an overstatement because sheep napping was not a capital crime in Israel but uh, nevertheless you can see how incensed David was and uh, Nathan says you're the man stuck his finger right under his nose you're the man and uh, David just fell apart at the seams put his face in his hands and, and he said I I have sinned, I have sinned. He subverted him, so you got him going in this direction, and David condemned himself. Well, that's exactly what uh, what Isaiah does in chapter 5. Let's listen to this song. Verse 1, I will sing to the one I love. It's talking about his Messiah, his Lord. A song about his vineyard, uh, back in 314. Uh, The vineyard had already been identified with uh, Israel. He says to the elders and leaders of his people, it is you who have ruined my vineyard. So this is a song about Israel, but they may not be fully aware of that at this point. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Planted it in the best possible site where it received uh, a lot of sun. He dug it up and cleared it of stones, uh, prepared the soil. Properly planted it with the choicest vines. Uses a word to describe uh, the the best uh, vines that were available at that time. Soric vines if you travel in uh, Israel today, you'll on your way to Jerusalem. You'll travel through the Soric Valley, which is a place where these vines were traditionally raised and grown there. And it's these vines that are considered the choicest. He built a watchtower in it so they could uh, be on the lookout for thieves and. Uh, foxes and other marauders that would destroy the vineyard. And he cut out a wine press as well. Dug out a wine press in the rock. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. But it yielded only bad fruit, sour grapes, hard little inedible sour uh, grapes. See what he's saying? God did everything he could possibly do to ensure fruit for Israel. And uh, the result was sour grapes. Now the fruit that he's talking about here is not the fruit of people won for Christ. We often use the expression that way. But the fruit that he's referring to here is the fruit of character. It's what Paul is talking about in Galatians 5 when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance, that is self-control. It's the fruit that's produced in our life when we're vitally attached to God, when we're related properly to him and depending upon him. It's the sort of thing that God looks for as as an evidence of real life. If the life of the Father is flowing in us, then the result will be a God-like character. Neither he nor the world is impressed with religiosity and, and uh the number of times that we go to church or the size of our Bible or how much we know of our Bible. What God is looking for is good fruit, the fruit of character, the fruit of God's life manifest in us. And uh, God did everything he could for Israel to guarantee its fruitfulness, but in the end what he reaped was uh, these little sour grapes. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, and I think, uh, you know, ding at this point, the coin dropped and they realized that he was talking about them. Judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? And the answer is nothing. You did everything. So the problem doesn't lie with God. It lies with the vine. Something radically wrong with the vine. Now what follows in chapter 5, beginning with verse 8, is a description of uh, the bad grapes. This corresponds to what Paul calls in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh. Those manifestations of self-effort. You see, the the fundamental sin in life is going our own way. It's doing it our own, uh, doing doing life our own way. And the result of that is always sour grapes. And he spells that out in in verses 8 and following. He spells it out in a series of woes. Hoy, he says in Hebrew. You, you know the Yiddish, oy vey. You often hear from, from Jewish people, woe is me. It's the idea, woe. Now he's not shouting in glee. His heart's broken. Hoy, he says. Hoy. He's sad. Brokenhearted. Because they have failed to be what God intended them to be. And he knows the misery that's the result. And let's just quickly look at the woes. Verse 8, woe to you who add house to house and join field to field. Till no space is left and you live alone in the land. He's talking about people who think of life in terms of what it provides and not in terms of what it means. He's talking about people who, uh, who think that life consists of an abundance of things, despite what Jesus said. Jesus said, life does not consist of an abundance of things. But we still persist in in believing that if we just accumulate enough things, then we'll really be living. We'll be happy. We can enjoy life. And these people are gathering more, and they're squandering more, and they're building bigger and bigger houses, and adding lands to their already extensive holdings. And and God says, uh, one of these days... uh, your houses will be desolate, and your found fine mansions left without occupants. On on my sabbatical, when we were in South Carolina, we uh, toured one of the Vanderbilt mansions in Asheville, South Carolina. It's a beautiful place. Uh, when it was built back in the eighteen hundreds, it was it cost millions and millions, millions of dollars, and. Uh, I had just been working through this uh, passage and I stood out in front of that mansion and I looked at it and I thought, isn't that interesting? Here, here's a house that wasn't built for hospitality, it was built for show. Here's a house that wasn't built to house a family, it was built to impress the peasants. And now it's a, it's a, it's a museum, that's all it is. Nobody lives there, this cold, empty museum, built uh, solely for, for purposes of uh, personal aggrandizement and, and the greed. I don't know how else to describe it. That's what it was at the heart of it. And now it's empty and, and desolate. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning and run after their drinks. That's what we call getting a little hair off the dog that bit you. Who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres and at their banquets. Tambourines and flutes and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. No respect. For the work of His hands. In other words, their passion for pleasure has crowded out their passion for God. They're hedonists. They live for pleasure. Think that life consists again of of the most pleasurable moments in in life. And God says, therefore, my people will go into into exile for lack of understanding. Uh, they're like the. Uh, Folks on the Titanic that were dancing to the music of the orchestra as the thing went down. And uh, Isaiah says, this is is what will happen. They're going to lose it all someday. Then in verse 18, Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. I must admit that the meaning of this text utterly escapes me. I do not have the slightest idea. What Isaiah is talking about, uh, this, is a, this is a guess, that's all. I think he may be saying that these are folks who don't fall into sin. They drag it to them. They go out deliberately looking for ways to express their resistance and their rebellion to the will of God. And uh, couple with that is a, a terrible uh, sort of cynicism. Let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. Let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come, so that we may know it. it. In other words, uh, God is not going to do anything. Uh, He doesn't notice, he doesn't care. He's involved with uh, other things. So we'll get away with with this. And I think of men who have walked away from their families. And they have told me, uh, it's all right because God understands, he knows. He doesn't really care. Besides, he wants me to be happy. And uh, furthermore, uh, once it's all done, I can ask for his forgiveness, and everything will be all right. Yeah. Terribly cynical approach to the uh, to the character and the will of God. Then, in verse four, uh, pardon me, verse uh, verse twenty, the fourth woe: Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. It's what we call moral relativism today. This, everything being turned up, upside down. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness? Who put bitter for sweet, and uh, and sweet for bitter? Uh, last July there was an article in Time magazine. Some of you may have seen it, called "Tying the Boy Scouts in Knots." And uh, it was about a group of gays that are suing the Boy Scouts for inclusion. And uh, the article uh, spelled out some of the uh, some of the issues involved. But what struck me was the Concluding comment by the, by the writer of the, uh, of the article, uh, Steve Hawk. He put it this way. What is troubling in the Boy Scouts' new emphasis on privacy is the hint that the group serves as a retreat for parents who dislike the diverse and tolerant world of today. But that is the world their children will grow up in tomorrow. The war calls it tolerance. But what Isaiah calls it is turning darkness into light, turning sweet into, into sour, saying that uh, what is sin is, is really good, it, it's all right. And I guess the irony to me was that same day, I uh, picked a my eyes, picked up a headline from the Boston Globe, uh, and the headline read, AIDS now number one killer of men in Massachusetts. And I thought, how tragic. How tragic. We live in this tolerant world where homosexuality is, is okay. It's alright. And it's killing us. It's killing us. That's the misery of resistance to the will of God. I have a great uh, and, and, uh, and I hope godly concern and love for, for homosexuals. I want to see them drawn to our Lord Jesus. But I see no hope for them apart from repentance and a coming to Jesus Christ and an asking for the forgiveness that he he brings. To me, there's nothing more tragic, nothing more tragic than an old queen who is no longer attractive and who has no place to go, no home, living all alone in that terrible, terrible loneliness that uh, older gays feel. That's the misery that Isaiah is referring to here. And then in verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Intellectual pride. And I thought when I read this of, uh, of Pilate, who when Jesus tried to speak of him of truth, said, what is truth? Uh, here's one who may have been seeking truth, but he was, not being, he was not willing to become truth. He was not willing to act according to the truth that, uh, that he had. And I think it's these that uh, Isaiah refers uh, to here. Then in verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, and champions at mixing drinks. Uh, they read Playboy magazine and they know how, and they know the best wines and they're connoisseurs of of wines. They know how to mix drinks, and uh, yet coupled with that uh, seeming air of culture is a terribly cruel injustice. They uh, acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice uh, to the innocent. This is always in the Old Testament a, a picture of society gone wrong when the weak and the helpless, the widows and the orphans are not accorded justice. That's a society that's rapidly becoming decadent. And uh, that's what Isaiah sees at, at the heart of the nation of, uh, of Israel. Now, these are the sour grapes That Isaiah saw. And uh, God's response is given in in verse 5. Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. And it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall. And it will be trampled. I will literally let it become a wasteland. Some of the translations say I will make it a wasteland. But the verb really implies uh, uh, something that happens as a a matter of course. I will let it become a wasteland. Neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. He looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress, cries of distress from those that were that were oppressed. That's a, a interesting and colorful thing here at the end of verse 7. He plays on the words for justice and righteousness. It sounds something like this. He looked for mishpat, which is the Hebrew word for justice. And what he saw was mishpak, which is the word for bloodshed. He looked for tzedakah, which is the word for righteousness. And what he saw was a cry of alarm, sa'aka. It's like our saying, he looked for right and he saw a riot. He looked for equity and he saw an iniquity. And so he had to do something about it. What did he do? Well, he just took the wall down. And he let nature take its course. And we'll see what that entails as we read through the book of Isaiah. Terrible, terrible uh, desolation of Israel as a result of the Assyrian... uh, Conquest of all of, of Judah until, uh, as Isaiah describes it, little Jerusalem was left like a, like a shack in the middle of a, of, a, of a field. All of the little cities were destroyed. Only Jerusalem was, was left. Or as Isaiah describes it in chapter 9, it's like the, the river Euphrates flowing over the land of Judah right up to the neck. They almost went under as, as a result. You see, that's always God's way. This, this is what the New Testament calls the wrath of God. God's wrath is not immediately felt. It is not God taking action instantaneously whenever we sin. If that were so, who of us would endure? It's rather when he sees hard-hearted resistance to the truth over a long period of time, he will eventually let us have our own way. He loves us enough. he'll let us do what we want to do as C.S. Lewis put it he lets us have that terrible freedom that we have demanded and the result is always this awful misery that is the result he just lets us go he just takes his hands off of us and our life begins to fall apart now this is what I believe Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 5 would you turn there with me please now, some of you may uh, know the book of First Corinthians well, and so you don't need a lot of background. Let me simply say that there was a man in the Corinthian church who apparently had seduced his stepmother and was uh, involved in an ongoing affair with uh, with her. And Paul says in verse five, or chapter five, verse one, "And you're proud. You're proud. This was a church that had everything." They had the best teachers, they had a, the best programs, uh, they had everything going for them. They, were, they felt very good about the state of their church. And Paul says, here's a fellow in your midst who calls himself a Christian, who is sleeping with his stepmother, and you're not doing anything about it. And uh, uh, what Paul calls for is basically what our Lord calls for in Matthew 18. Now, when a brother or sister is caught in some sin, trapped in that iniquity, then one is to go and appeal, and then two or three are to go, and in private conference, appeal to that person to come back. And then if that person doesn't respond, and they go on in their rebellion and in their resistance, then, uh, then we're to announce it to the church. We've had to do that from time to time. It's difficult, it's hard, it's painful. It makes us sad. We feel like Isaiah, whoa, boy, there's no glee, there's no happiness, no joy in that. And then, finally, if that person will not listen, even to the church, as the whole church begins to appeal to that person to come back, then Jesus said, let them be to you as a tax collector and a sinner. Now, some of these doctrines are so hard, we just have to look at the way Jesus lived them in order to understand them. And uh, we have to understand that Jesus looked at tax collectors and sinners as outside the covenant, as non-believers, non-disciples, but he still loved them. And it's this fourth step that Paul is talking about here, and it's what Isaiah is referring to in chapter 5, where finally God just takes his hands off of us, and we drift off with no protection into a world that's dominated by evil and the evil one. And Paul describes it uh, this way, verse 4 When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Why does God punish sin? Because somehow we deserve it? No, because he wants to destroy it. That's why. See, he loathes sin so much because uh, he knows the misery that that it produces, that he will do anything to enable us to to be free. He wants us to loathe sin so that we will be its executioners. But if we don't loathe it, then he will have to do something. He is a consuming fire. God is not not tame, as C.S. Lewis puts it. Now, to us, uh, his love and, and his judgment, his fire, seems, uh, seems dissonant. But we need to understand that when he judges, that judgment is designed to consume the evil in us. It consumes what is unlovely in us. Evil, not judgment, is the awful thing. But uh, when that process works its way out to completion, When, like the prodigal son, we find ourselves in in desperate straits, alone, lonely, miserable, and we say, I will arise and go back to my father, then uh, he remits the sin, he restores us, and as I said before, he makes us better than we've ever been before. Remember the story of the prodigal when he started home? The father ran to meet him lost his dignity, threw off his robes, ran down the path and grabbed the boy and, and embraced him because uh, he loved that son and he wanted him to be fully uh, fully restored. Uh, I don't know who wrote this poem. It's probably familiar to all of you, but I thought of it in this light. The best part of going, he said, no matter where we roam is the turning, turning for home. And uh, whenever we have uh, taken our own course and we've walked away from God and we turn and come back to him that's the best part he's there to restore us now let me have you look at one other passage we just have a moment or two uh, turn to John 15 this is the uh, passage that we sang a moment ago have a peanut Uh, Peanuts cartoon in my office shows Lucy with her she's glaring at Charlie Brown she has her hands on her hips she says you Charlie Brown are a foul ball in the line drive of life you're in the shadow of your own goalposts. you're a miscue you are three putts on the 18th green you are a 7-10 split in the 10th frame you are a dropped rod and reel in the lake of life you're a missed free throw, a shank nine iron, a call third strike. Do you understand? Have I made myself clear? She said. And uh, sometimes we feel like Charlie Brown. You know, we're uh, we're a miscue. And uh, we don't know what to do about it. You know, we're, we're off here somewhere. And, and we're not the kind of person that we want to be. We don't know where we've gone wrong. Listen to these words from, from John 15. This is our Lord speaking. With... Isaiah 5 in the back of his mind. That's what makes this chapter come alive for me. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. True in contrast to what? Israel, the false vine. The word for true here is the word for authentic in contrast to spurious or false. I'm the real thing, he says, the authentic vine. And my father is the vine dresser, the one that Isaiah said he loved. He, now I'm going to retranslate verse 2, and I'm going to explain why I'm doing that in a moment. He lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit. My translation says cuts off, and I feel that's a very bad choice, because it gives a totally wrong, a totally wrong concept. This is the word that Jesus used when he said to the man that was lying on the pallet, rise, pick up your bed and walk. This is the verb that's used in in John 8, where we're told the Pharisees picked up stones to throw at Jesus. It does not mean cut off, it does not mean throw away. It means to lift something up from the ground. So when God sees us as an unfruitful branch, and we're willing to come back and abide, remain in Him, what does He do? doesn't cut us off. He lifts us up. See, That's what the ancient vine dresser did. He walked along the rows and he found uh, vines. That, you know, tendrils had fallen off and he picked them up and he fastened them on with string on the, the uh, trellis with string and got it up off the ground so become fru- it becomes fruitful. And that's, that's what happens to us. We can be in the most desperate straits in our sin, and we come back to the Lord, and we begin to experience again the flow of His life through us, through repentance and through dependence, and He lifts us up higher than we've ever been before. You see. And then we're told that uh, uh, every branch that does bear fruit, He cleans it. So that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean, he says, because of the word I've spoken to you. Judas was gone at this point. These words were spoken in the upper room. Judas had left. Before he had said, you're clean, but not all of you. Judas left. Now he speaks of the eleven that are left. You're clean because of the word. And now the word is going to go on cleaning you. That was the other thing that the vine dresser did. He, They didn't have insecticides in those days. That's why they had birds. And... Uh, uh, the, the vine dresser would walk up and down the, the, the rows of vines and he would find, uh, find leaves that, that were bug ridden and he would take soap and water and he'd wash them and that's what the word does it just keeps washing us, cleansing us purifying our lives, purifying us from, from sin setting, setting us right and uh, the key to it in, in verse 4 is remaining in him remain in me and I will remain in you. That, that's the responsibility of, of the vine. That's all we can do. So he, he, he's the vine. We're the, we're the branches. And when the life of the vine is flowing through the branches, then we're producing fruit. So our job is uh, just to hang on. Hang on to him. A friend of mine defines uh, abiding as a deliberate contact with Jesus Christ through word and thought. I love that. Deliberate contact with Jesus Christ. Through word and thought. It's going through life saying Lord Jesus help me. Here's a situation I can't cope with. Help me. Here's a problem I can't deal with. Help me. Here's a manifestation of the flesh that overwhelms me. Help me. And it's just relying. Trusting. Depending. Believing on him. And it's in that way that we begin to produce more and more and more. More of the character of of Christ.